We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the unbelievable truth. It's the panel game that blends extraordinary truths with barefaced lies. Of course, many things that we think are true are not true at all. For example, Sherlock Holmes never actually said, Elementary, my dear Watson. Although, interestingly, he did once say, Oh, come on, Watson, even a spanner like you could have worked that one out. <laughs> on to our panel and four finer comedians you will not hear. Yes, it's unfortunate, but we'll just have to make the best of it. Please welcome Fred McCauley, Susan Kalman, Charlie Brooker and Lisa Tarbuck. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five pieces of true information which they should attempt to smuggle past their opponents, cunningly concealed amongst the lies. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. We'll begin with Fred McCauley. Fred, your subject is the duck, defined by my dictionary as a water bird with a broad, blunt beak, short legs, webbed feet and a waddling gait. Off you go, Fred. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. Allow me, if you will, to reproduce my impression of Donald Duck sneezing, an act which won me third place in the 1982 So You Think You Can Sneeze Like Donald Duck <laughs> Glasgow Regional Final. <laughs> Another... Another cartoon character, Popcat, when he wasn't chasing the mouse Tweety Pie used to abuse Officer Dibble on a regular basis, but never actually made fun of his name, even though it means to drink like a duck. It's a reflection of how they behave in the wild, where a number of drakes will ambush a single duck, mate with it so vigorously that the poor creature sometimes drowns. Charlie. That sounds like the sort of cruel and unpleasant thing that happens in natural love lives. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. Yes, well done. <laughs> and in a way... I think I'm glad that that was a truth rather than something Fred made up to try and amuse everyone. <laughs> it's Just... not behaviour that's covered by cartoon ducks, is it, generally? No. no. If it were to happen, Charlie, it would sound something like this. Stop! <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've now broken Donald Duck for me. I... <laughs> he was gagging for it. <laughs> was waddling about with no pants on. <laughs> Only one pair of monogamous ducks has ever been reported. Known as Darby and Joan, they were a familiar sight around the Norfolk Broads at Hickling. They were inseparable for many years until, as nature intended, one of them got shot. <laughs> I myself have shot duck. I'm not proud of it, but I had to do it because the persistent sneezing was annoying me. <laughs> Can it's... I go for uh, the romantic ducks? Was that me? That was I thought that was oh, Lisa. Sorry. Did you both go? We both. We, I think well, we I both to, did. I have what, to be. Lisa's I have to be fair like... here. And Lisa's light came on first, oh. and electricity does not lie. Susan's really staring at me. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Darby and Joan Norfolk ducks I was going to have. She wasn't going to say that before I said that. That's yeah. outrageous. Well, in this instance, Susan, you've been lucky because it's rubbish. <laughs> 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 I totally outsiked her there. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> It's getting nasty. <laughs> like many other game birds, ducks are really unpleasant to eat. However, if you happen to get a duck at the right time of year, you won't even have to pluck it because all its flight feathers fall out at the same time. 
You'll see these ducks looking slightly embarrassed at the temporary flightless naked state, scuttling around the reed beds wearing small barrels with leather shoulder straps. <laughs> In Mexico, the chihuahua was used as a hunting dog for ducks, its name coming from the choking noise the dog would make if it got duck feathers lodged in its throat. In Germany, the preferred duck hunting dog was the poodle. Charlie. I believe that the Germans might be perverse enough to use poodles to hunt ducks. They are indeed. (laughs) I know. First genocide and now this. (laughs) Um... In fact, the um... in fact, the name poodle comes from the German word pudeln, meaning to splash about in water, which is presumably what a poodle does when it's eviscerating a duck. <clears throat> the expression, like a duck to water, is actually a corruption of the old saying, like a duck to otter, meaning that a venture hadn't worked properly due to misidentification. Maybe I didn't make that clear enough. Like a duck to otter. No, I did make it clear enough. (laughs) This is based on the observation that male or female ducks sometimes attempt to mate with an otter as it swims past. The mistake could have been due to the duck's eyesight being impaired by one of its three eyelids at the time of the attempted union. The otter had no excuse. Susan. A duck has three eyelids. You're absolutely right. A duck has three eyelids. Very good. Ducks, Ducks have three eyelids, as have all birds. The third eyelid sweeps excess fluid into the corner of the eye where it drains. Its membrane is transparent, so vision is not impaired when the eyelid blinks. What I don't understand is if the inner eyelid you can see through and just protects your eye and all that, then why ever open it? Just have it constantly Well, maybe shut. you want to feel a breeze. <laughs> but in case you get a bit of a sort of clammy eye. Well, no, it just makes you feel alive, doesn't it? Have you never stuck your head out of a moving car and opened your eyes wide? <laughs> I mean, I have stuck my head out of a moving car, but not particularly to ventilate my eyes. <laughs> well, you're mean, my, a coward. My... <laughs> I am a coward. So, yeah. And that's the end of Fred's lecture. Yep. So, well done, Fred. <laughs> and... Um, Fred, at the end of that round, you've managed to smuggle two truths past everyone else, which are that dibble means to drink like a duck or to lift one's head up after every sip, and ducks lose all their flight feathers at the same time and cannot fly for a few weeks until the new ones grow in. That means you've scored two points. The collective nouns for ducks are a paddling, if they're in water, a flight, if they're in the air, and a starter, if they're in a pancake. (laughs) Okay, we turn now to Lisa Tarbuck. Your subject, Lisa, is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, a prolific and influential composer of the classical era whose 600 or so works in almost every conceivable genre are widely acknowledged as amongst the greatest of their kind. Off you go, Lisa. Johnny Mozart's middle name was Wolfgang, and it came from his mother's side of the family, who were members of the notorious Heidelberg street gang, the Wolves. (laughs) Mozart only had one ear for music. The other one was strangely shaped, what doctors call a Mozart ear, and he kept it covered with an earwig. (laughs) As a composer, Mozart initially worked very slowly and spent six years writing The Barber of Seville, 
His agent insisted he should speed up his output, so he wrote Don Giovanni the opera in one sitting and had it performed the very next day. Susan. Don Giovanni written in one day and performed the next day? That is absolutely true. Well done. Yeah. Mozart's rival, Sally Army, tried to go one better, and his opera, Cozy Toot Fanny, was performed the day before he wrote it. It wasn't a success. When Mozart couldn't find anybody able to play his fiendishly difficult piano sonata number 14, he persuaded the pianist Heinz Henschmidt to agree to having two extra fingers grafted onto his right hand. When they were unable to find a surgeon prepared to do the operation, Mozart composed a piece that merely required the player to use two hands and his nose. <laughs> Mozart was known for his lack of a sense of humour. On one occasion, Haydn sat on a needle and let out an agonised squeal. Mozart merely remarked, G-sharp. <laughs> Beethoven immediately went over to the piano and played a G-sharp. Mozart was correct. On another occasion... Beethoven himself let out a squeal after sitting on a bumblebee. Mozart exclaimed, B-flat. <laughs> Fred. I enjoyed that very much, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, right much. at the start, you said he was known for not having a sense of humour, and I think he was a pretty dull character, Mozart. Uh, that was a long time ago, Fred. Mm. And, um, I know, it was, I mean, he'd been dead. Honey. Yeah. <laughs> About well, it. I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that's not true. Mozart's well known for having a very good cocky yeah. sense of humour. For example, he once wrote a canon in B-flat major for six voices entitled Lek mich im Arsch or Lick my Arse. <laughs> Mozart was a Boy Scout, a member of the Cambridge Footlights, a Fauvist, a Freemason, a Buddhist and a popular leader of the Lib Dems. <laughs> I think he was a Freemason. The magic flute's all about rolling up your trouser leg and uh, saying, all right, mate. Yep, you're absolutely right. Can't argue with that. <laughs> Mozart also played football for Bayern Munich, but is mostly remembered now for his work as a dairy farmer and the cheese that bears his name, mozzarella, from... <laughs> from Salzburg and prized as a great luxury, although today the Italian copy, mozzarella, is more widely known. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. And at the end of that round, Lisa, you've managed to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel. Which, which are that Mozart's middle name was Wolfgang. His full name was Johann Chrysostomus Wolfgang Gottlieb Mozart. Amadeus is Latin for Gottlieb, which is why people think that was his middle name. Uh, other f memorable middle names include Richard Tiffany Gear and Harry S. Truman, where the S stands for nothing despite the full stop. I actually think Richard Tiffany Gear, that's fine. Tiffany's a surname, and apparently it was his mother's maiden name, and he's not at fault. It's the people who started calling people Tiffany as a first name who are at fault for their vulgarity. Um, <laughs> the second truth is that Mozart had a strangely shaped ear what doctors now call Mozart's ear and he kept it covered with an ear wig the condition results in a bulging deformity to the exterior or pinna of the ear and the third truth is that Mozart composed a piece that required the player to use his two hands and his nose 
The story goes that Mozart taunted his friend Joseph Haydn, that Haydn would never be able to play a piece of music that Mozart had just written. Haydn began to play from the manuscript, but stopped on discovering a note in the centre of the keyboard while his right hand was playing a high treble and his left hand a low bass. Nobody can play this with only two hands, Haydn exclaimed. In foreign, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I can, retorted Mozart in foreign. And (laughs) proceeded to bend over and strike the central note with his nose. Haydn remarked in foreign... With a nose like yours, it becomes easier. (laughs) And that means, Lisa, you've scored three points. (laughs) Right, it's now the turn of Susan Kalman. Susan's recent Edinburgh show, The Last Woman on Earth, was set in a world where all human life had been wiped out. Think Eastbourne after a cold snap. (laughs) Your subject, Susan, is makeup or cosmetics such as lipstick or powder which are applied to the face to enhance or alter the appearance. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. Off you go, Susan. The people you would expect to be least conscious of how they look are, in fact, the biggest users of makeup. Felicity, man-hater Dubois, the founder of Feminists Against Men movement, secretly wore mascara. But to make sure she wasn't found out, she used to wear it on her lady garden. (laughs) <laughs> women in nudist camps tend to use more makeup than women elsewhere, although they tend to use all over body paints to make sure that they're noticed amongst a group of naked people. In Morrisville, Pennsylvania, women need a legal permit before they can wear lipstick in public. And in the small Scottish town of Paisley, women are not allowed out of the house wearing foundation less than five millimetres deep. <laughs> Charlie. I can believe there's somewhere where you need a permit for lipstick. Well, you're right to believe it, and that place is Morrisville, Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, It is one of those weird US laws that exist but aren't really observed, which are basically so brilliant for this show. (laughs) Um, uh, Others include the Kansas law that you're not allowed to catch fish with your bare hands rather than it's just difficult. (laughs) And the Texan law that it's illegal to graffiti someone else's cow. (laughs) Makeup disputes are among the commonest grounds for divorce. 14% of couples who are divorcing have stated that their partner's obsession with the slap drove them apart, although 83% of those were women married to clowns. (laughs) As all parents of teenage girls will tell you, there's nothing simpler than getting someone to stop wearing makeup. In 1974, Philip Grundy, a dentist, left his dental nurse £181,000 on condition that she didn't wear any makeup or jewellery or go out with men for five years. She didn't and is now happily married to a woman called Bruce in San Francisco. Charlie. I can believe that there was a dentist that weirdly controlling. <laughs> yes, there was. Well done. <laughs> Yes, and other unusual legacies include Samuel Bratt, whose wife wouldn't let him smoke, and he left her in 1960 the sum of £330,000 on condition that she smoked five cigars a day. (laughs) And Juan Potomachi gave 200,000 pesos to the Teatro Dramatico in Buenos Aires in 1955 on the sole condition that his skull be preserved and used as Yorick in Hamlet. And the German poet Heinrich Heine left his estate to his wife on condition that she remarry. So, and I quote, there will be at least one man to regret my death. (laughs) If you name somebody in your will, they actually, and you're leaving them money, they actually are obliged to be there to receive it. 
Really? Well, that's what I've heard. What if you name 10,000 people? Well, well, what if you named somebody nice and sort of interesting that would have to make... Well, the... they, you don't have to turn up if they don't want the money. Yeah, that, I, I suppose mean, that'd be the case, if you, wouldn't if it? You, if you say, I, I quite like the idea of Elton John turning up to the reading of my will, I'll leave him 60 quid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my kids there, have always wanted to meet him. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a risk. There's a risk that the spendthrift sod wouldn't turn up. <laughs> Prior to Lidl selling their own brand of cosmetics called Lidl Women, <laughs> there was nowhere you could buy proper makeup. Before the days of lipstick, women used to colour their lips red with crushed beetles on a base of ant eggs. Lisa. Crushed beetles. Colouring. I mean, you are right, but I wondered if you'd treat us to a verb. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> I was doodling. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, Cleopatra wore precisely this <laughs> lipstick that's made from the deep red pigment created by crushing cochineal beetles and blending the concoction into a base of ants' eggs. Mm. Yeah. When eyeshadow cost more than a whole <laughs> salmon, it was common for women to use the skin of the fish as decoration for the eyes. Whilst attractive, it often caused a bad smell, which is why perfume was invented, to cover the smell of fish. <laughs> <laughs> Fred. I just feel I haven't buzzed in for a while and uh, at the risk of losing a point, I think maybe fish scales might look nice on an upper eyelid or three. Uh, no, that's not true. Although lipstick has used the substance pearlescence, which is found in fish scales. So. Oh, it wasn't so far off, was it? No, it wasn't. Beetles. <laughs> fish. Eyelids. Fish. Fish. Eyes. Four. <laughs> Makeup all too often leads to a life of crime. A survey of shoe shops said that lipstick is at the top of the league of items most frequently shoplifted by women. However, traces of mascara have been found at nine out of ten armed robberies, as it's thought that the mascara assists in keeping the tights out of the robber's eyes. <laughs> I believe the shoplifting fact. You're absolutely right on the shoplifting yeah. fact, yes. I should have been... I should have been at the Chilcot Inquiry. <laughs> Did they have to buzz in at the Chilcot Inquiry? In case, if, if Tony Blair says anything true. <laughs> uh, lipstick is the most shoplifted item by women. By men, it's razor blades. Um, is it? Yep. Thank you, Susan. And um, at the end of that round, you managed to smuggle just one truth no. past the rest of the panel, which is that women in nudist camps tend to use more makeup than women elsewhere. <laughs> Suppose they've got more to cover. <laughs> and that means you scored one point. Sean Connery has to have the tattoos on his arm covered by makeup when filming. The tattoos declare his love for his mum and dad and for Scotland, but not oddly for the tax-free haven of the Bahamas where he actually lives. <laughs> now it's the turn of Charlie Brooker. Charlie's hilarious and pithy comments about the state of modern television are frequently quoted amongst London's media set, to such an extent that there's not a members' club in Soho without its huddle of TV executives all sharing their favourite lines of Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Your subject, Charlie, is Thomas Edison, American inventor, scientist and businessman who developed many devices that greatly influenced life around the world, including the phonograph, the microphone and a long-lasting practical electric light bulb. Off you go, Charlie. Contrary to popular opinion, Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb in order to help mankind see at night, but in a desperate bid to keep a moth entertained. (laughs) The bulb's illuminative properties were a happy side effect, especially for Edison himself, who was afraid of the dark, and had spent every evening of his life up to that point uncontrollably screaming in blind terror until sunrise. Susan? I think Edison was afraid of the dark. That's absolutely true. Well done. He did. When, when he was once asked if he was afraid of anything, he replied, I'm afraid of the dark. Although this was a man who was trying to market the light bulb. So, <laughs> As a child, Edison was brilliant at school, which he left at the age of six, having learned everything there was to learn. He then tutored his parents at home until they knew enough to conduct intelligent conversations with him. <laughs> Telephones were all the rage, and Edison quickly made his mark on the new invention by creating the engaged tone, the doop-doop noise you hear when ringing a busy number is a recording of Edison humming idly to himself in his workshop while waiting for Alexander Graham Bell to get off the line. (laughs) Edison also pioneered the use of the informal word hello to signify the start of a call, prior to which the stifling etiquette of the day meant all phone calls tended to begin with an awkward two-hour wait as each party tried to work out which of them should speak first. (laughs) Susan? I have a feeling that um, Edison was the one that started the relaxed one because before that, people used to go, ahoy there, or there was some ridiculous greeting that they used to do. Ahoy, hoy, yes. Uh, I think Edison was the one that first said, why don't we just say hello? That sounds good. Yes, you're absolutely right. (laughs) Some people people do start phone conversations by saying ahoy. They're sort of irritating office jokers. The reason I know it is because actually Mr Burns and the Simpsons always answers the phone with the hoi hoi. Alexander Graham Bell wanted it to be ahoy hoy, and um, that's what it originally was, and then hello was brought in by Edison. Ahoy hoy. It would have been normal by now, though, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Regular. I I don't think hello was normal. I don't think people said hello when they bumped into each other. Not on the phone. They'd say good morning. It was was an exclamation of surprise. Hello! Yeah. Hello. Yes. But you can sort of hear it. It's like the sort of adventure novels of the interwar. Hello, what's going on here? Hello, that's a rather strange place for a hooked man. <laughs> or jings. Sorry, jings. 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 It's a jings. Scottish exclamation of surprise. Jings. 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 Can't have a ball. G. G I N G. G S. Yeah, jings. Jings. Both made that up. Jings. jings? You all say jings. Yeah. Jings. jings. It really is a different jings. country, isn't it? <laughs> jings. So if, like, drop Just something... keeping saying it's not making it sound any more plausible. Jings. 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 What do you mean? What? Let's say we went backstage and you walked into the toilet and I was there naked, you go, jings. <laughs> <laughs> We should broadcast this because all the letters from Scotland will start with jings. Have you never heard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Despite his familiarity with the telephone, Edison considered the human voice boring and preferred to converse using alternate means. He wooed his future wife using semaphore, popped the question by tapping out a proposal on her hand in Morse code, and exchanged vows via carrier pigeon. Lisa. I'll go for tapping out Morse code. Or will you marry me on her hand? You're absolutely right. Oh, oh yeah. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> despite, despite despite Charlie's 
deft uh, hiding <laughs> of it in a middle clause. Yeah. He, using semaphore, popped a question in Morse code and exchanged vowels via carrier pigeon. Hey, I didn't know we were getting marks for style. <laughs> <laughs> Don't no. bring a whole new level no. into things, no, you're abs- I mean, you tyrant. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I just, you know, it's, it's interesting in, in to Charlie's see... In Charlie's defence, though, of all the facts he could have <laughs> picked on this guy, he's picked that one because it is rather beautiful. It's sweet! Yeah. You think? Yeah. I think he maybe just had a bad tremor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, he did. it's quite true. He proposed to his second wife, Mina Miller, in Morse code, and she answered in the same way, tapping his hand. And after they were married, they often spoke to each other in Morse code. The winter nights must fly yeah, by. Exactly. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> Edison claimed to be able to hear the current humming in an electric cable and once silenced a meeting so he could enjoy listening to the sheets of paper settling in his notebook. <laughs> his hearing was so remarkably acute that Henry Ford once bet him a thousand dollars he couldn't hear the Pacific Ocean from his office in New York. Much to Ford's dismay, Edison said he could hear it just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Always ahead of his time, Edison also invented a crude forerunner of the iPad. His version consisted of a shiny rectangle that looked nice and lit up a bit, yet disappointingly served no other discernible purpose. In other words, it was identical to the present-day version, although Edison's iPad flopped since no-one in 19th-century America could work out how to log on to the App Store. He also invented a temporary canoe made of rice paper, an official uniform for wasps, the motorised tie rack, four types of imaginary candelabra, a machine designed to pick up evidence of the afterlife, a helicopter that worked on gunpowder, the street luge, the cassette single or casingle, honey nut cornflakes, metal Mickey, C3PO, Max Hedrum and David Cameron. Fred. Yeah, one of those things in the list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you going to... Uh, not David Cameron, not Max Headroom. Mm. I think maybe the machine for finding out if there was anything in the afterlife. Well done, oh. yes. <laughs> the writer B.C. Forbes revealed in 1920 that Edison was working on an electrical device intended to communicate with the dead. It obviously didn't work. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Charlie, you managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that Edison invented a helicopter that worked on gunpowder. Or at least the equally explosive gun cotton. It exploded, as you might expect, and also blew up part of his factory. So essentially he invented a bomb with a propeller. (laughs) That means you've scored one point. Thomas Edison is credited with inventing the light bulb. He had a brilliant idea for something else and it just appeared above his head. (laughs) Which brings us to the final scores. In fourth place, with two points, we have Fred McCauley. In third place, with three points, it's Lisa Tarbuck. In second place, with four points, it's Susan Kalman. And in first place with an unassailable six points is this week's winner, Charlie Brooker. And that's about it for this series. We'll be back for more in the autumn. All that remains is for me to thank our guests. They were all truly unbelievable, and that's the unbelievable truth. Goodbye. 
Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists Susan Kalman, Lisa Tarbuck, Fred McCauley and Charlie Brooker. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and the producer was John Naismith. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.